לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Conservative Congregation. I'm Shimon, joining my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Anshay Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Long Island, Solomon Shekhar Day School, Long Island. You're, you're starting out again. I am. I had my first in-service day today. Your first in-service day. It's my 25th year at the school. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It should only be with muzzle. It should only be with health. Should have a good gesund year. It should be a great year. When did your 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 classes start? Day after Labor Tuesday. Day. Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. Wow. Okay. It, it, just just getting into that frame of mind that the world is going to begin again is uh, is quite awesome. But in order to get into that frame of mind, we have an awesome parsha, an amazing parsha, Shoftim, which is the fifth of our parshiot in the book of Dvarim. It is, no, it is the sixth parsha, three, five, fifth parsha in Dvarim, 41 mitzvot in this parsha. If you want to know how many letters, 5590, 1523 words, 97 verses. It's got a mitzvah density of 41 mitzvot per 97 verses. That's a point, almost 40% mitzvah density. I love that statistic. Where, where, where do you get all that spectacular? I get this information from this book. This is the Koran Chumash with Rashi. And okay. a, a bunch of books that have these kinds of things. We always like these these kind of trivia because it, it uh, you know, trivia is important in its own way. <laughs> but I love, the, I love the concept, actually, of mitzvah density because... As perhaps as we'll talk about, and you know, based on our pre, pre, pre-show conversation, uh, you know, what it is that you do and the mitzvot of the things that you do, you know, shapes your whole religious, your whole religious experience. So I want a mitzvah dense parsha. Absolutely. Well, Kitetze is the most mitzvah dense parsha, and that's coming up next week. Okay, but Shoftim. So we have the 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 the, the beginning of Shoftim is well known to us because it's really a kind of constitutional statement about judges, the, this branch of government, shoftim v'shotrim, titen l'cha. You should have judges in your community. Tzedek, tzedek, tirdov, justice, justice thou shalt pursue in order to live. You need to live by justice. But, you know, we were talking uh, quite at length uh, prior to recording about the king. And and I, I'm just going to fast forward to that. The, 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 the rules relating to the Israelite king are part of this Parsha. Uh, it it, it um, uh, comes up in you know, 1715. 1715? Okay. That, that's, that, was Louis, that was Louis XIV. Louis XIV. When you come into the land, 
verse 14 in chapter 17, when you come into the land that God is giving you, and you say to you say, Asima Alai Melech, I'm going to place upon me a king, like all the nations around me. And you can even you can hear in that text that there's such a tension here. You want to be like everybody else. You you just want to be like everybody else. You want a king. And and you know, the entire book of Samuel is built around this theme, like, you know, yeah, I I I I I I'm going to give in to you. You you want a king? Okay. So here here's here's Saul and then there's David. Right, and, but and, you could only have the king that got appoints. Okay. And there is a set of rules for this king including Susim, he can't have too many horses, Loyarbelo Nashim, can't have too many women, the Chesav Vizahav Loyarbelo, he can't have too much silver and gold. So it's women, it's it's horses, horses, women, and gold and silver, okay? But we get that, I guess. But the, the most compelling mitzvah in this is, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he has to write this Torah, this, this copy of the Torah. So he has to be literate, he has to be able to to use a quill and parchment. He has to be able to write this Torah. So whether it means the five books of Moses, whether it means this teaching, whether it means you know is whether it's in the minimalist sense of uh, this text or scroll, or in a maximalist sense of you know the entire five books, we can we can have that debate. But I want to focus in on this question. Vaita imo, it should be with him. He's got to read it all the days of his life. That's amazing, right? He's got to he's got to have the Torah in his pocket, basically. Even though pockets, that's an anachronism. Leman yilmad et Adonai so that he will learn to fear God. Leman yilmad So I want to focus on that phrase because it's such a powerful phrase to learn to have awe. For God, and and the 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 proposition here is that having the book, the Torah, with him in his vest, in his garment, in his hand, carrying with it all you know all the time, that is going to help him revere God, and and so I want to ask the question, which is, well, how how do you learn to revere God? How does one learned to revere God. The proposition here is that he's going to read the Torah. He's going to read, I guess, Shema Yisrael. And from that, he's going to get reverence. He's going to read Tzedek Tzedek Tirtof. And from that, he's going to revere God. He's going to read, I don't know, maybe he's going to read Breshit Barai Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And from that, how does a person learn to revere God? And does the text have anything to do with it? Is, that, is the text the single most important avenue to the reverence of God or one of several? So I'm gonna I'm gonna hand that to you, Jeremy. Take it away. Okay. How do you learn to revere God? Well, so I think that the king is an interesting and perhaps unique, unique case. And every everybody, based on you know their roles in societies, all people may have their own challenges. I would say that part of awe, like we've got two, we've got a polarity of love and awe, ahava and yira. They're like the major religious emotions in this religion. Love 
I just, you know, we talked about that a few weeks ago when we were you know, that, that feeling of commitment and loyalty and so there's a celebration kind of aspect and awe is, is like, I, I, of course, probably in the, in the whole mix, you know, over the centuries, some of it has been fear of punishment. I better do what God says. Otherwise, you know, bad things will happen. But I think that awe in the in the most elevated religious sense that I can think of it is is just a sense of my own relative smallness in the presence of something far surpassing. You might feel awe when you you know you stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, and there's a little bit of like actual fear. Oh my goodness, this thing is going to swallow me up if I fell in there. I'd never be heard from again. Awe at the sense of the ocean, like anybody who's been swimming in the ocean and a big old wave come picks you up and throws you throws you around, you feel the power of the ocean much bigger than your own small self. And and I think that you learn to have awe when you come in contact with something really, really surpassing. Now, the king, for the reasons that you kind of were suggesting, um, is 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 has got a particular yetzer hara, particular evil inclination or bad inclination that is likely to seduce that person into thinking, you know who the biggest and most important thing is? Me. I'm the biggest and most important thing. I'm the king. I'm in charge. Everything is oriented towards my power. And so the Torah, I think, is designed to remind the king, uh, actually, there's something much, much bigger than you. There's much more important than you. And your your role is actually devotion to what's to what's really big. Your role is, is your leadership. Yes, you're the leader. And David HaMelech and Shaul HaMelech were excellent. You know, Shaul ends up as a flawed figure, but David and Solomon and ultimately Chizkiyahu and Yoshiahu, different, the, the latter kings of Judah, are portrayed as just excellent, excellent human beings. They are leaders, but uh, the reason they're leaders is for the sake of the, of the people and for the sake of uh, creating a society that reflects you know, divine order and virtue. So all that is a way of saying how, how would the Torah cultivate awe in the king is to remind the king what you're doing it for and to see yourself, you know, to 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 quote a very important Jewish text, the great animated movie Prince of Egypt. Yitro tells Moshe, you have to see, look at your life through heaven's eyes. And this will this will enable the king to look at his own leadership through heaven's eyes. Barry, I want to turn to you because because I think you you. You have a concurrence, but also maybe a difference. I, I think in large measure, I, I do concur. I think that the king has a difficult problem because the living of his life leads him to think that he is God. And that is certainly true in in parts of the ancient Near East. Um, I think we mentioned in an earlier show, uh, perhaps a week or two ago, that the pharaoh was often reified he became a god for the egyptians and it's easy you know again i come back to this idea that in the torah itself god's communication is always clear but in real life it's hardly ever clear so we have to imagine the king is alone in this on his throne in his palace whatever there's no reason for him not to think that he is not the ultimate in his kingdom and that is incredibly dangerous from God's point of view. And depending on what we think the, the book that the king has by him is, will affect what we actually think will motivate the awe. But I think in general, it's this idea 
that the king is king because God chose him, not because he was so worthy himself. It, and that, the, yeah, if I can just the, add about that, Barry, um, you know, th this, it's no chidush to say that this, the book of, of Malachim Bet does, you know, celebrate Solomon and think Solomon did a lot. Solomon does marry a gazillion women. They lead him into idolatry. Solomon does have lots of money, so much money that the queen of Shabbat comes to see. And says, I, can't, I, I heard you had money. I couldn't even believe what you actually have. And he and he returns to Egypt to to uh, to enhance his cavalry with all the horses. So it does seem, you know, to instantiate what you just said about um, it's it's the point is the divine designation and not the the excellence of the king themse themselves. You know, even the great Shlomo, who is who is an undeniably great figure in the in the Tanakh, this this passage seems to be pointing at Shlomo's particular failures and having a little bit of a, you know. Exactly. And yeah. you know the theme of the Torah itself, I think, is via the bear Adonai Moshe more that God spoke to Moses. That you know, it's funny we call the Torah Hamisha Chumshe Torah Moshe, but it's really God's Torah, not Moses's Torah. And the king always needs to be reminded that in fact he is subordinate to God. He is not an equal, and Chasva Chalila. He is not greater than God. So it's very interesting. I mean, you know, here the the commandment to keep the Sefer Torah, to keep, you know, some the writ next to you uh, is, is is very specific. I think it. I, I mean, I don't know what what other cultures have this. You know, there. I I, I do recall in teaching this. I remember, there's an anecdote about Thurgood Marshall who kept the Constitution in his pocket all the time. Right. He was not the only Supreme Court justice, but you wonder if the president ever did. Okay. Well, uh, and and so not to, not to go there, but he to go read and it. say, you know, what would what would uh, you know a president look like if the president kept the po uh, a pocket edition of the Constitution in his pocket? Right. I'm sure uh, Lincoln, you know, probably kept uh, some some important texts you know, next to him all the time. Oh, he did keep the Gettysburg Address in his hat, so. <laughs> okay, so, but the, the king is not the only one who has this uh, educational imperative. Um, we, we read last week that when you bring the maaser, you, you bring your tithe, the maaser sheni really, to be consumed, the purpose of that is to learn to fear, to learn reverence. So, it's it's really incumbent upon everyone to learn, and and I guess my question really is a broad pedagogical question, which is, so so here we are, we're three educators on some level, we but we all teach, you know, in different different capacities in different venues. How do you inculcate reverence, and 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 is it through books? Is it through people? Is it through experience? Is it through something that we don't even know? And and I mean I'm going to turn to you, Barry, to start off with this because you're you're in front of kids all the time. You know, Jeremy and I were used to be, and sometimes are still. You know, at Ramah, but you're 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 you do this daily. You know, is part of what you're doing to educate reverence or to content? I think that there is no one way to teach anything, but especially something like reverence. And the trap that we fall into in education is thinking that there's one best way to do something. 
And, you know, education is, um, I, I think, I can't think of a great word, but the word episodic comes to mind. It happens at different points in time, at different points in space, in different points on a plane, for example. And we connect the line later that tells us how we got there. I, you know, if we think there's only one way, I think we will miss the boat entirely. And I think that, you know, part of the point I think you're making is that the king needed to be reminded because he had a special problem that our ancestors were already aware of you know, thousands of years ago. And it's always a problem. You know, it's going to be a problem that comes through every generation. It's it's so interesting. He's got to keep the book next to him all the days of his life. He's got to learn and relearn this all the time. And and, and Because okay. it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And it's also a, 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 um, a demonstration of his personal growth. Jeremy, go there's ahead. A, um, there's a, there was a late 19th, early 20th century, one of, one of those Lithuanian, you know, Talmudic masters, Mayor Simcha of Devinsk, and his Torah comments are called the Meshech Chochmah. Yeah. And he's got a spectacular little drash about the golden calf. He says, why did Moses break the tablets? It's really about the tablets. The golden calf. Moses comes down, the golden calf, and he sees the people celebrating before the, the Egel Hazahav. And why does he smash the tablets? Because he says, I know this people. I can see that they will even make an idol out of the Torah. Yeah. They will make an idol out of out of the tablets, and I'm gonna I have to break it because I can't let them have them. Um, and so I think that the Judaism, the rabbinic Judaism that we've inherited and love, and I love to study Torah, and I I, I do have it, studying Torah awakens, you know, my feeling of just the inexhaustible resource of meaning that it is. It can also be, you know, a bit of an idol, and so. The, going on with what with what Barry was saying about there is no one way. Judaism is a very very intellectual tradition. It's a book tradition, and we do claim that that you know that the Yam Shel Talmud or the Yam Shel Torah is an infinite is an infinite sea, and you will always find you know sources of meaning there. I absolutely think that's true, and I also think that it would be a kind of a scanty you know religious orientation if you can't also say um, you know. Uh, the 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 to see to see the universe in a grain of sand as as William Blake said I think I think it was William Blake um, you know every little bit of of created uh, every bit of creation you know contains a little hint of infinity and every animal and every plant can awaken those things and I like what you alluded to before Elliot about you know seeing in people like there there are excellences in people that you can look at. And be reminded, you know, like be reminded of how much goodness there is, how much order there is. Like, you know, what it's 21st century in America, and we're always inclined, I think, to be a little, little snarky and be a little skeptical. And the world stinks, and uh, and the environment's going down the drain, and and the American political system is is you know challenged, challenged. Um, and I think that there are moments, though. And, and they are in, in human wisdom, and they are in human ethics, and they are in natural creation that make you say, oh, oh yeah, actually, I, I'm getting the the experience of the order beyond the chaos. And well, those me, are the things that I think you really, you know. So let, let me know. ask you this question, which is, you know, I, I, I recently I had an experience of, of watching live music, and and the performers were, were amazing. And, and I am sure that you and and many of our 
viewers, watchers, listeners, have had this experience when you see an amazing performance and that that takes you beyond your your present and it puts you it, it it gives you a little transcendence look you know for for those people who enjoy sport you know watching michael jordan i i i don't want to be superlative but but there was just beauty there there was just it's just remarkable agility and skill you know in the hockey world it would have been gretzky and and oren beliveau and and all those people that that to take something, take this human skill to levels that are are beyond comprehension to normal mortal people. And so in the realm of art and sport and, and human creativity, uh, you know, there are trend possibles of possibilities of transcendence, but also, and here's where I'm going with this, in the in the realm of of kindness, in the realm of ethics, in the realm of of just the behavior of one person to another, you know, that's the line. And I'm, I'm, I hope I'm quoting it properly from Eshel. When I was young, I admired uh, smart people. When I was older, I admired kind people. That kindness taken to its, its, its artist, ex, you know, excellence is transcendent and, and, and brings you into contact and makes you, I think, reverent in a way that, that, the book doesn't. So I'm asking again, the angles into or the avenues into reverence could consist of, you know, for you, you just read a book on fungus. For me, it's a book on minerals. You know, I, I, these are amazing things. You know, the Torah has, you know, such profound wisdom and profound transcendence possibility and, and the ability to give us so much life. Um, and then life itself with 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 all the different aspects of of excellence. I mean, how many more angles of in, into this? God. You know, it's interesting, Elliot, yeah, no, that you, you quote Heschel here, because I think that as we get older, we can and often do become more sensitized to kindness. It's one of the few things that we can actually do better as we age. We all come to realize over time that our intellectual skills, no matter how proficient and profound, have definite limits. We're never going to know everything that we want to know. But we can be kind always. That's a choice that we can make, and it's not a, a product of our age. It's not a product of our experience. It's a product of our will. You can always and we be can, kinder, I guess. Yes, and we can. It's a place where we can all excel. You know, it's interesting because we're now in Elul. So, so thinking about how to do tshuva, Maybe this is one aspect of it, you know, that, that okay, we can only learn so much and, and, and we all want to learn and know more, but, but one avenue of growth is certainly to be, to become better. On this, on this point, I would say that, and this I think perhaps relates to the king, um, you know, is, is that kindness, chesed, staka are other directed. They're about other people. And not that you shouldn't be kind to yourself as well. That's 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 a good thing. But our learning, I think, is mostly you know to enhance our experience and our minds. And and um, certainly, I, I, I'm a big sports fan, and uh, and watching transcendent athletes is absolutely amazing. But those athletes aren't doing it for me. They're doing it for their own, you know, maximal achievement. Um, parentheses. Uh, last night was Serena Williams' uh, first round match at the, at the U.S. Open. This would be her final Open. She, she won and, and she was very powerful. I saw her 
bunch of years ago at the first round of the U U.S. Open, I saw a match of Serena and then Federer, and it was absolutely awe-inspiring. They just were – it was first round, so their, their competitors were not in their league. They clobbered them, but it was just really watching an amazing artist. Anyway, so learning sports, and, uh, and the king's power tend not to be other-directed. Uh, they tend to be self-directed, self-aggrandizing. The king has to be reminded to be other-directed. And when we talk about the excellence of human behavior is manifest in, in chesed and, and tzedek and, and you know, kindness and justice, I think we are saying you can always get better at focusing on other people. And maybe as you get older, as Barry was suggesting, you know, that kind of youthful... I have to get ahead, I have to make a name for myself, or I have to do this, or I have to do that, or I want to accomplish my goals. You know, maybe that is overly self-directed, and we, as we get older, we calm down a little bit, and maybe we can be more other-directed. It's, 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 I guess, humility. The king has to learn humility also. That, that I mean, it all goes hand in hand. And, and you know, as many people who want to protect the king from the public, uh, the king does need to be uh, accessible in some way, and and having the Torah next to him makes him accessible in a way that that the trappings of kingship probably remove him. It's, it's, I think it's a very profound idea. And, and maybe the Torah is trying to work this out because it's, it's I think at its core, it's very ambivalent about, about the monarchy altogether. It's very ambivalent about, about these institutions. It's not ambivalent about prophecy, that's for sure. I mean, it, later on in the, in the, in the, in the Parsha, you have, you know, Navi, God will appoint a prophet like me, come on me, right? You know, uh, it's not, and, and, and we, we spend a lot of the Tanakh with the words of prophets, uh, and of course, a lot of Tanakh uh, on the lives of kings, uh, and, and mostly their, their flaws, uh, with the exception of David, who was, well, he was deeply flawed, but also extraordinary. Inspired. Inspiring. But, you know, it's interesting because I think many people, even today, at some point in their lives would like to grow up to be a king or a queen. But no one I know wants to be a prophet. Right? The life of a prophet is not a life that we would choose, which is perhaps why God chooses them in a way differently than he chooses other people to serve him, such as the kings and the priests. So interesting you said that. And, and just allow me to riff on this for a second because you know we do have a reenactment rituals in judaism where you know we we become a king and king queen you know at, at a wedding there is a bit of that um you know the the chatan and kala are are deferred to with with a kind of royalty would you go as far as to say that that in the traditional household on shabbat the friday evening meal is a uh, is there a, you know, is is it the Shabbat HaMalka is the monarch, but but in as we are configured presently, is are we reenacting a monarchy when we create Shabbat like that? What do you think? Is there is there a, or is there a moment where where we are the king? Well, this, that's that's there you go because. Um, because I think that there's a, a, a vibe that is like participating in, um, in, in, in royalty. Like, okay, you know, just one small example. 
you know, kings wore the royal blue, and every Jew is supposed to have the teal okay. tehillet. There's like there's some bit of everybody is supposed to be, you know, a little regal, and and I think that I think that the you know like the shir hashirim and the song of songs stuff, but you know the king at his feast, and they don't necessarily mean like the king. There is one. There's a constitutional monarchy, and there's one king of England or queen of England. It just means like the powerful people, and so. The, the you know the king at his feast and you know the king brought me to his chambers and all that stuff is reenacted in human scale I think on Shabbat so everybody everybody is supposed to have some little bit of regal feast and regal you know um, uh, you know specialness beyond beyond the ordinary um, but I but I I think that's probably like not the part of royalty that we're really dealing with in this parsha which is as you said. You know the his the historical books in the Bible, the the Nevi'im Rishonim, you know Samuel and 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 the kings, um, they are deeply ambivalent about uh, the these leadership. They can be flawed, and they can be even worse than flawed. Like the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, are portrayed in in Melachim, uh, Alp and, and Bet as like really being yeah, yeah, the worst. Yeah. They're just terrible. Um, and, well, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking at the clock. Barry, you want to chime in on this one? But I yeah, I reminded you know for Martin Buber, the failure of biblical Israel, meaning the people, was that they insisted on having a king, because yeah. in Buber's reading of the Bible, the original idea and the great religious idea was that God was the king, and He was the only one who was entitled to reign over the people. And bad things inevitably must happen. Okay, you 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 got <laughs> slowed down there for a second, which was which was it sounded like we had a you know you had a few too many. But so I want to I'm I'm looking we 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 spent the whole uh, uh, talk on on this and that's great. I wanna I wanna uh, it occurs to me. That you know, since and we are in Elul and we are approaching Yamim Noraim, where we think of the King of Kings. So I want to ask you this question, which is, do you think the King of King of Kings has a Sefer Torah next to him? <laughs> and of course. He, and you he, know, the image and, from the Midrash is that God looked into the Torah in order to create the world. All right. So, so in light of what we have here, in light of the legislation of the King, it's the, you know, is it is it a far leap in the imagination to say that that God needs humility too, <laughs> that God that God needs to be reminded of compassion, and God needs to be reminded that we are creatures, and that God needs to be reminded, like like you know, uh, we we are just uh, you know I'm fragile. I'm going to go a little differently. Go ahead. We have this. We have this bit of midrash that says, you know, in in in, in our tefillin is written Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, and in God's tefillin is written Umika Amcha Ki Yisrael Goyechad Ba'aretz. So our tefillin praise God. God's tefillin praise our uniqueness. I would say that the human king needs to be reminded of the divine order, and the divine king reminds reminds. Himself, herself, itself, the universe um, of human fragility and specialness. I would, I, I can't, I can't, I can't go with, with the uh, reminding of humility. But I, I can get an idea that that the divine book, you know, this uh, Psalm, Psalm fifty something, fifty four, 
Nodisa Farta, uh, you 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 write down all my wanderings. Um, you gather up my tears in your binodeha in your flask, flask, yeah. um, uh, and you write them in your book. Like that, ah, oh, that's such a beautiful line. I, I it deserves me to get the actual line. So, uh, if I can find it, but. Um, the divine gathers up our tears in God's little bottle and writes down all of our wanderings. How awesome is that? Uh, what do I have? What do I have? Uh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Nodisa farta atasima dimati binodecha halo besifratecha. You keep count of all my wanderings. You put my tears into your flask and write them in your book. So that's that's for me. That's what's that's what's in God's book. So, uh, well, this brings us to another, you know, high holiday metaphor, which is the book. You know, we're we're everything is written in the book, but but we mean that metaphorically that that God is keeping us close by writing down, as it were, uh, and and what God looks at um, is to remind God that that we are these fragile creatures. I think, I mean, it's such a powerful idea, you know, this, this, uh, the idea of a king. I mean, it seems so remote from our world and yet it touches us on, on so many different levels. It's, it's, uh, extraordinary. And, uh, and look at that. We've run out of time. We've only done one issue. We didn't even get to nefesh taka nefesh. And and and, and the, oh, the 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 mashuach melchama the, the speech that the priest gives at the end of a battle is so fascinating. Adim zomamim. We've got we've got the, the framing witnesses. It's just so much so much in the book. Who gets exempt from going to war? Mihaish. I love that phrase. Mihaish. You know, in 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 this parsha, it's who is the person who just got engaged? Who is the person who just built a house? Who is the person that just you know, planted a vineyard, but you know, it's interesting how the psalm develops that 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 uh, that that uh, phrase, "Miaisha Chafitzchai." Who is the person that desires life? We all desire life, and as again turning to these days, you, you misread the verse. The verse yeah. is "Miaisha Chafitzchai." Who is the man? The Chafitzchai. He was the man. He was the man. And and don't forget about the Egla Arufa. Oh my God. The beheaded calf. All our readers will, all our watchers, listeners, and fans it's, will remember about the beheaded it. calf. It's about what happens when there's been wrongdoing and you just don't know where to assign the guilt. Right. It's so this like provides a nice, a nice uh, coda for the parsha. The parsha begins with shoftim v'shovrim, which is a kind of positive accountability. Whatever you do, you have to account for. That's why we have a system of justice. The end of the Parsha with the Egla Arufa brings about where we have to be accountable for the things that we fail to do. We fail to protect the man who found himself murdered in the field, and even that is our responsibility. So, so we have this movement from positive responsibility to a kind of negative responsibility, all under the justice of the one guy. Whoa, that, that, was, that was profound. Beautiful. And, and, and I could see how studying the Torah leads us to reverence. Because studying an idea like that, I think, takes us into a different realm. 
And with that, we've completed our time together. We've taken you into a different realm through this, the joyful study of Torah. We want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for being with us, watching us, listening to us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We are really, really happy and honored and humbled that you have spent this time with us. We look forward to seeing you again, hearing, you know, listening to you or you talking, listening to us in the next edition of Parsha Talk. So in the meantime, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.